This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Jane. Thanks very much to Peter and Marissa for the Doing Time show just now. Sterling job there. Tonight we hear about the injustice of climate change in the Philippines and the agenda court case in the Netherlands. Vivian met Yeb Sanyo, who was the Philippines representative to the UN and who is now going to walk to Paris with the Pope's encyclical in his hand. We learn about how Typhoon Haiyan wrecked lives in the Philippines from Greenpeace organiser Anna Abad. Another person walking to Paris in November will be Marianne Minesma. She will walk from Utrecht and with her will be many of the public-spirited people who took the Dutch government to court for not protecting them enough against climate change. And they won. Vivian interviewed her at the Environmental Defender's Office in Melbourne. Where is the justice for the 4 million people displaced by Typhoon Haiyan? That's my question for you tonight. I went to Pitt Street Uniting Church to hear a talk by two people from Greenpeace, Anna Abad and Yeb Sanyo. It was lucky to get an interview with Anna because they were both flying back to the Philippines the next day. It was the anniversary of Typhoon Haiyan. Anna represents Greenpeace in the Philippines and she's involved in a climate justice campaign. Anna tells a terrible story about a man whose wife was being blown away by the typhoon and his baby was dead in his arms. This was not an act of God, this typhoon, and it was one of the fossil fuel events that we are getting used to seeing on our news. But we must take responsibility for the damage overseas of our coal, oil and gas, especially, in Australia's case, of our exports. And I have with me Anna Abad, who is a person from Greenpeace in the Philippines, and she's just given a very interesting talk and uh, about the campaigning they're doing, about the climate change that is certainly impacting all of us, but has recently impacted the Philippines with Typhoon Haiyan, which everyone will remember had massive numbers of deaths and huge destruction. So welcome, Anna. Would you like to um, tell us, first of all, about the... uh, that that typhoon, how it affected your country, and then uh, we'll talk about some other issues that are raised 
raised from this about campaigning against fossil fuels. Thank you, Vivian. So yes, Typhoon Haiyan has been, is is the largest, um, um, the most intense typhoon that ever made landfall in human history, and this was the first time for um, Eastern Samar people in Tacloban to experience this as well. And while scientists can't pin or will not pinpoint any particular typhoon to climate change, they are clear that more extreme weather events will be ha- will happen. Um, especially to vulnerable countries like the Philippines. So how did it affect uh, your family or people you know? Um, well, I was affected by Typhoon Bopa, that was uh, Typhoon Ondoy, which was in 2009, and um, where 80% of Metro Manila was inundated. Yes. Um, and first floor of our house was basically underwater. We had to go up to the second floor, and everything um, was lost. All of our personal mementos, um, my photo, our photo albums of when we were children, it was all gone. Um, and this, to me, was a turning point because never in our lives have we experienced flooding in our home. I thought it was safe. But then, after experiencing that, nowhere is not no nowhere is safe anymore. And even when I visit um, people in Tacloban and Eastern Samar, those were the, that were affected by um, Typhoon Haiyan, there is already that fear and trauma in their eyes because um, they say they know that this is now going to be the new normal for them. But when they they feel that this is not something that they can adapt to, um, loss of human lives is really there's no equivalent um, dollar or or value of money for that mm. because it's it's a human person that you lose. So um, it's it's a it's a call it's a cry it's a plea for them to make sure that this doesn't happen um, in the future. And the reason why we are doing this climate justice campaign is to bring the human face into the discussion on climate change because oftentimes you have a team of climate negotiators and governments in one room and they go to really expensive countries and burn a lot of you know carbon emissions but then you have the communities that meet and talk to each other so never um, there is no there is no uniting factor um, or a discussion between and among the among the those that are affected and those that are actually um, have the power and the authority to put a stop put put an end to the climate crisis I think a lot of until now throughout history people have always regarded these intense events typhoons and floods and bushfires in the case of Australia they use the phrase act of God yes. and we're at a seminar here tonight called Green Pilgrims and, and, and we know that faith communities are very robust they can join together people behind something but if people are thinking oh it's an act of God then they're disarmed they can't do anything about it but you've been telling us that really you can slot it down to quite easily visible targets you know 90 companies or state-owned um, entities how widely is that perception um, found in the Philippines and you've been recently to Vanuatu how much are people connecting the dots and saying it's not an act of God this is something that need not be this intense these are the well-known typhoons that we've always had but but they are much more intense because of the carbon dioxide emitted in a way that doesn't need to be emitted we can have power from other sources yeah that's true um, in fact every time I go to coastal communities and you have to understand so these are people that don't really go out of their little islands they don't understand what climate change is all about so um, one time I asked uh, I asked a, um, a mother of two and she said oh climate change you know we should stop cutting trees because that's contributing to climate change but 
it's really trying to inform them and trying to um, educate them on how everything is connected globally and that that level of, appreci- of appreciation comes afterwards when they see that there are studies done by scientists or um, such as Mr. Richard Healy where he looked at historical and cumulative emissions since the Industrial Revolution and um, from that study, nine, it, it all boiled down to just 90 entities, corporate and state-owned entities, that have contributed to um, carbon dioxide and methane emissions globally. So that's about two-thirds or equivalent to 63%. Well, you had a slide on the screen, and I noted down some of the companies, the yes. well-known culprits, Exxon, Chevron, Shell, yes. and I imagine the state, um, state uh, like Saudi Arabia, I imagine, is a state-owned uh, petrol exporter. Um, how do you propose in your campaign to push the energy of people who are the victims against these small number of companies really and state entities? It's actually quite um, easy once they understand who is to blame because in the past as you said people think it's an act of God mm. but then now they are slowly understanding that it's really not just an, not an act of God um, because they know that their God will not do this to them and they understand now that it's just a few, uh, a few are, are responsible for the climate crisis so I think it's in, in, in the past when you ask people who is responsible for climate change, everybody will just say, we all are responsible. But because of these groundbreaking studies that are coming out linking um, anthropogenic climate change to impacts such as extreme weather events, it's, it's become clear and it's creating that um, stronger resolve and conviction to people that they can actually um, hold those responsible to account for their contribution to the climate crisis. What is um, Greenpeace's sort of campaign strategy? So right now we've um, we are we've made an announcement with the Commission on Human Rights that we are going to file a, a petition, a human rights petition, to hold um, these big carbon polluters accountable for their climate, to, for their contribution to the climate crisis. And so the human rights institutions will actually, at least for the Philippines, will then contact the human rights institutions in the countries where these companies are domiciled, so they can do an investigation. So they will do the summons um, investigation. Um, from, 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 it's a parallel agency um, effort. So that's the first step that we are doing. Um, and then, of course, then the campaigning of informing and educating everybody that there's really just only 90 entities that are responsible for this. And it's our way to erode the social license of those that have, um, since time immemorial, been shielded by governments that protect their vested interests. So... That's well, what we are doing. Well, I think that's true. I think one of the recent climate talks in Poland, um, Christiana Figueres, she went out of the United Nations summit meeting that was there in Warsaw over to a coal industry forum that was in the same city in, in Warsaw, and she went and addressed them. And I thought that showed she had some guts. People said, "Oh, she sh- she shouldn't have she should have ignored them." But they mm. that was the coal industry, European coal industry, and I think you know facing up to these groups and saying you don't have the protection of the state or of the international community is very good. Are there any other examples you can see where people are starting to now take away that protection that these companies have that makes them look like responsible citizens? I mean, in Australia, we have coal billionaires who say we are here to supply the needs of the poorest countries. Well, 
with, uh, apart from the human rights petition, we are also exploring um, and developing legal actions and transnational strategies. But, but of course, this would have to go together with other uh, other countries where these companies are domiciled because it's it's going to be a long, arduous battle. But we are prepared with this first step with the human rights petition. We are prepared for the long haul. Um, in the as in the case of the big tobacco, they had 30 years before we actually got um, the outcome of labeling their products and exposing them for their um, health hazard effects. We don't have 30 years for climate change. Um, and already science is saying that, you know, the, the oceans are getting warmer. More intense typhoons will happen. So we don't have 30 years. We need to emphasize and stress the urgency to act now. And that's why what we are hoping is we get more people, more support for, for, for these actions, similar to what the Peruvian farmer has done. Because if the Peruvian farmer can take down the German company, then that itself is one big victory for us that can resonate far and wide to countries um, um, like the Philippines even or Pacific Island countries and to also give them the confidence that you are not weak uh, and people will support you and it's it, David and Goliath battle but we know, know we all know who won in the end. Yes. Well just for our listeners, tell us the story of that Peruvian family. It was in your PowerPoint presentation, there was a photo but uh, could you just tell us that little story and what happened? Yeah, so the Peruvian farmer is um, going to file a, a case against a German company um, demanding compensation for future harms from climate change because his farm is acutely threatened um, by the glacial lake that's going to burst its banks. So he wants to make sure and ensure the protection of his farm for that because it's the only lively source of livelihood for him and his family. And um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there was this really powerful question that he asked the lawyer who 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 who, it was it was also featured in the newspaper which i followed um the client the the previous farmer asked his lawyer do you think is it it is correct um for polluters to never be held liable for their actions um and i always ask this question especially to those who feel that they don't have the power to take upon um a big corporation because oftentimes they know that it's wrong they know who the culprit is but they're scared to stand up to them and the question of the Peruvian farmer really even even the lawyer said that was that was that was um that was very powerful and it made, I guess gave her the stronger resolve to help the Peruvian farmer and to make sure that you know this story doesn't just end here but it would be inspiring um, inspire other people to take acts of courage as well. Well I heard after that uh, typhoon Haiyan there were demonstrations outside the American embassy, maybe it was in Manila not Tacloban, <laughs> there wouldn't have been much left there but uh, that wasn't reported at all in our press, it was reported in the sort of left wing press and then it was mm-hmm. swallowed but I think people are connecting the dots and it's very good that you're doing this campaign. Could you tell our listeners if they want to find out a bit more about your work and um, the Greenpeace campaign, mm-hmm. where should they look on the internet? Yes, um, please kindly check out climatejustice.greenpeace.org.ph slash climatejustice. Uh, and in that website, you will also find the human rights petition. And we hope that you can support us, um, be supporters to the petition. So then together we can amplify the voice and make sure that those who are responsible will be held liable for their 
bad practices. Yes, and we'll find, you know, if we, we, we won't be here in 100 years, but, yes. you know, I, I, I predict that those companies will transform themselves. They'll turn into solar businesses or yes. renewable energy businesses. They, they won't, you know, they'll, they'll pick up the wind the way the wind's turning just yes. as uh, rubber plantations went out and yes. lots of um, businesses changed uh, to suit the times. So let's hope that that comes quick enough to slow down the climate change that we're already experiencing. So listeners, look up Greenpeace website and the PH, I think, is for Philippines. And I think you can probably find that campaign. Thank you. Thank you so much. Just tell us your name again. Anna Abad. I'm the climate justice campaigner for Greenpeace Southeast Asia based in the Philippines. Thank you. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Next speaker is Yeb Sanyo. He's also from the Philippines and he has a very diplomatic, velvety manner about him. He was the chief negotiator for the Philippines at United Nations Climate Talks. So why did he throw it all in? Now he is on a pilgrimage. He will carry the Pope's letter, you know, about the climate change impacts on the world, from Rome to Paris for the United Nations Peace Conference in November. But he says Paris is not the ultimate destination. It is, uh, it's been a fantastic journey coming here to Australia. Um, and uh, tonight I'd like to be able to talk about uh, my own personal journey that I believe is everyone's journey and invite you to join us as we embark on something really special this year but that would continue on as we uh, embark, as we confront the challenges we face as a human family. Again, I'm Yeb Sanyo and I used to be the chief climate negotiator of the Philippines. I don't know how many of you um, have followed uh, are, are, are following the convoluted international negotiations on climate change, but I decided last April on Earth Day that I'm done with it and that I'm joining the people in this larger fight. Because And then I've gotten rid of half of my wardrobe, maybe more than half of my wardrobe, because I'm not going to wear my suits anymore. This day is, of course, special. And before I continue, I'd like you all to greet the person next to you with of peace. Peace be with you. Peace with you. So peace be with all of you. Our planet, our Earth is crying out, crying out to us for such a long time already and it behooves us to stand in solidarity as we reflect on this global challenge. It's amazing how we find ourselves today here inside a church talking about what I would consider as the defining issue of our generation. Our generation will be judged by future generations, by the way we respond to the climate crisis. And by the rate we are going, I think it's not going to be a good judgment in, in the coming generations. But we can change that. We have the power to change that. And we, indeed, we are. 
doing things on the ground and I have seen a lot of beautiful things happening in communities and as, 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 uh, as we will learn today, uh, our story has had already begun from many communities and uh, I'm talking to you about people's pilgrimage. Um, it, is a, it is a journey that includes all of you and right now includes Sydney and many communities that are confronting the impacts of climate change and the reality that it represents. Last year, to commemorate the first anniversary of Super Typhoon Haiyan, the strongest ever storm that has made landfall, not just in the history of the Philippines, but in the history of humanity, Together with a few committed friends, we walked 1,000 kilometers from the capital of the Philippines at a marker that's literally called kilometer zero up to ground zero, which is 1,000 kilometers away in Tacloban City, which I would surmise all of you knew about after the, after the storm. 1,000 kilometers. And I learned a lot about the human spirit walking with all of these amazing people. You know, the first 200 to 300 kilometers of that walk was very physical. I was trying to convince myself that, hey, you can do this. And indeed, it was grueling in, in sweltering heat. The next 200 kilometers was very mental. And that was the time when we started quarreling with each other. It's really petty quarrels so with, with each other. And uh, doubting whether what we're doing means anything to the world, whether we're making an impact, whether it's really worth walking a thousand kilometers, just to remind the whole world that this is an issue that we should all care about and that we should never forget those who have fallen during the night. But the last 500 kilometers was spiritual. And that was the time you stopped quarreling and I started to discover a lot of things about myself. It was fantastic. And that inspired the people's pilgrimage. We now understand that the tragedies we see around us, the tragedies in our lives, of course, it's part of our humanity. But how we transcend the tragedy and come together as a united human family is what makes a difference. And that's why we are on this journey. We're always on a journey. But now, something reminds us that we have got to do something. Climate change is the manifestation of a, of a world that is dysfunctional, of a world with, a, with an economic order that favors a few, and where we see more people uh, getting into deeper poverty, where people are not truly happy. And happiness is, sits at the core of what we try to achieve. Every time we say, I want to pray, every time we say, I'd like to practice my faith, happiness is what matters. But all around the world, we see a lot of people pursuing lives that's opposite of this pursuit of what really matters to all of us. I go around the world, I go around the Philippines, I ask people, what matters most to you? Many people will tell me they want good health. They want their children to be happy. They want, they want uh, a dignified means of, of living. They want a healthy environment. 
uh, unpolluted air, forests, and clean water. And very few people, I have not encountered someone who would say, I like, a, I like a really, really big mansion, or like some fancy cars, I like tons of loads of money. Perhaps we know of people around the world who would be happy with that, but, but then again, real people, genuine people, the definition of happiness is about a more just, more caring, more equitable world where we share what has been given to us. And so we embark on this pilgrimage. A few days ago, we started the global leg of this pilgrimage in Vanuatu, always on top of the climate risk rankings, always number one, how Vanuatu hoped it was the Olympics, and they'd always get the gold medal. The Philippines always gets third place in these risk rankings, and so uh, we are also on top of the vulnerability list. But it doesn't stop there. Every, each one of us has to confront some kind of climate impact in our lives. Sydney is not spared from that. The entire communities uh, across Australia is not spared from that. And we are all in this boat together. If we are going to sink, we're going to sink together. If we're going to swim, we'll have to hold our hands together and stand together. The People's Pilgrimage goes on, and this morning I had a fantastic, amazing opportunity to see the Blue Mountains, which is a blessing, it's a gift. And for, for, for you who, who have the chance uh, to imbibe all of that beauty and splendor, it, it should be seen as a gift, as a blessing. And this morning was powerful. I got, I got the ochre blessing for safe travels, and I carry that in my heart for the rest of the pilgrimage, the rest of the journey. And uh, I will hold that in our heart. The Blue Mountains is also now facing threats to increase uh, temperatures around the world and uh, the bushfires and the, and the wildfires that, that, that are happening. It's not just threatening lives, it represents a bigger problem, a bigger challenge that all of us around the world must confront. We will, we will then move on to other communities which show climate resilience, spiritual strength, and defiance, if you may. Defiance against this big challenge, and also communities that are showcasing solutions, and standing in solidarity and linking up arms. So for those who are marching towards this new dawn, we must march with them. For those who are standing up for what's right, we must stand up with them. And for those who are on the right side of this climate issue, we must stand on their side. We will then culminate this journey this year with a 1,500-kilometer walk from Rome to Paris. And uh, one of our friends here will talk about a very important letter that Pope Francis will be releasing very soon about the environment, maybe an unprecedented message. And we will carry that literally from Rome to Paris, maybe a hard copy of that in our hands, and walk all the way to Paris Square. Again, world leaders and those who have the power to change things will be gathering in Paris. And we must, in, we must shout with the loudest voice that they must not disappoint us because the future is at stake and this is a battle we cannot afford to lose. But the pilgrimage does not stop in Paris. 
Paris is not our ultimate destination. Our ultimate destination is the hearts and minds of people around the world. Until, until we can truly say and look our children in the eye every morning and tell them, I'm leaving you a better world. And that's what must keep us going. A lot of people ask me, why do you do what you do? Why, why do you keep on fighting the good fight? Because I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to wake up in the morning and tell my two lovely children, I've done my best and I'm leaving you a living world. I'm leaving you something that you can be proud of, something that I can be proud of passing on to you. So that is the story of this special journey and I invite you to be part of this, not necessarily literally, but we will carry, I'm looking around the room and I, I have a good photographic memory and I will carry each of your faces in my heart as we walk along this journey. Hi, I'm Craig Memory from the Alternative Technology Association. We've recently been announced as a finalist for the Google Impact Challenge Grant to support the next ambitious stage of our work to bring renewable energy to remote villages in East Timor. The Google Impact Challenge Grant provides up to half a million dollars for not-for-profit organisations who are using technology to improve lives. Our plan is to provide solar-powered lighting systems for 2,000 families and train 75 locals to install and maintain them. These systems deliver safe, affordable, reliable energy to households that otherwise rely on burning limited local resources and costly fossil fuels. Thanks to Anna Abad and Yeb Sanyo, who had to fly back to the Philippines the next day. I think it was wonderful to hear their perspective. If you've just joined us, we're talking about climate justice, how to get it, and who is on the front line. We have Greenpeace climate campaigner Nicola. He talked to us about divestment. Now, you've heard many programs from us about divestment, but he gives it the historical perspective so that you really can believe this momentum gathering around the world, how people are taking responsibility for lowering emissions by taking their money out of coal, oil and gas. My name is Nicola, I'm a climate uh, and energy campaigner at Greenpeace Australia Pacific. And tonight I'd like to talk about one of the main tools at our disposal in reducing the carbon pollution uh, produced by fossil fuel companies and helping to prevent the kind of tragedies that Yeb and Anna have already spoken so eloquently about. I'll also tell you a bit about the work that Greenpeace Australia Pacific is doing in trying to save the Great Barrier Reef from destructive coal mining and to reduce the worst impacts, worst consequences of climate change as part of that work as well. As already foreshadowed, the, the tool that I'm talking about is fossil fuel divestment. Divestment, for those of you that have not heard of the idea, is basically the opposite of investment. It's taking money out of companies or organizations uh, whose actions are in conflict with your values uh, or those of your community. Uh, that can be a personal act through your own uh, bank accounts or, or other financial uh, products. It can be working with your uh, local council or other community groups to basically not uh, continue to fund organizations that are basically doing uh, the wrong thing. Um, it's learning to do right and in doing so to see that justice is done. Divestment has been used as an effective social justice campaign tactic throughout the 20th century. Prominent examples include the fight against apartheid in South Africa and the campaign against the tobacco industry in the 1980s and 1990s. 
Uh, Desmond Tutu uh, recently threw his support behind the fossil fuel divestment campaign and drew the direct parallel with the struggle against um, apartheid in South Africa in an opinion piece in the Guardian newspaper. And um, it's bears quoting um, in some detail because I think he expresses the imperative a lot better than I certainly uh, I think I could. So um, Archbishop Tutu writes that during the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, using boycotts, divestments and sanctions, and supported by our friends overseas, we were not only able to apply economic pressure on the unjust state, but also serious moral pressure. He continues, people of conscience need to break their ties with corporations financing the injustice of climate change. We can, for instance, boycott events, sports teams and media programming sponsored by the fossil fuel energy companies. We can demand that the advertisements of energy companies carry health warnings. We can encourage more of our universities and municipalities and cultural institutions to cut their ties with the fossil fuel industry. We can organize car-free days and build broader societal awareness, and we can ask our religious communities to speak out. As Archbishop Judy points out, the decision to divest from fossil fuels is a profoundly moral one. Climate change is not an environmental issue. Or to put it another way, it is manifest in the environment, but it is ultimately about people. We've already heard about the impact on the Philippines of the kind of extreme weather events uh, that a warming planet will make so much more common, uh, so well described by some of the other speakers tonight. And it's clear that all of us have an obligation to do whatever we can, whether personally uh, or in our communities, to prevent these kind of disasters afflicting our fellow human beings. Climate change, driven in part by carbon emissions in Australia and the coal that we export and that is burnt overseas, is not localised here. It affects the whole planet and its people. And we know that it affects the most vulnerable, the poorest, and the most isolated much more quickly than those with the resources to protect themselves or to quickly rebuild the damage. The decision to divest, as I said, is a moral one. It is not surprising, therefore, that the divestment campaigns that have been run over the past few decades, faith communities have been at the forefront of that charge. Whether it's tobacco, the horrors of apartheid, or the move away from fossil fuels today, divestment campaigns have tended to follow three steps. First, religious groups and industry-related public organizations take the road in divesting their own holdings. For example, in the 1980s, Protestant and Roman Catholic churches pledged to divest $250 million from banks with ties uh, to South Africa. Universities, cities, and some public institutions usually go next, as when in 1990, Harvard University divested, 200, uh, sorry, divested nearly $58 million from tobacco companies. And finally, the broader market tends to follow suit if the campaign is effective. Over the past two years of the fossil fuel divestment campaign, a wide range of faith groups have led the way, including in Australia, the Quakers, the United Church in New South Wales and the ACT and its National Assembly, and the Anglican Diocese of Perth and Melbourne. Internationally, there are dozens more, including the World Council of Churches, which represents over 300 churches, 590 million people across 150 countries. It is important, however, to take a moment to clear up a common misconception about how divestment works and why it is effective, where the power of the campaign comes from. Its power is not in the direct impacts it has on companies operating capital. It's not the case that if enough people and institutions just pull their money out of uh, a particular company, then BP or Shell, for example, will just go out of business because they don't have the funds to operate. 
Instead, the power of divestment lies in removing social license and stigmatizing the company or the industry in question, creating a negative image around a target which can affect, affect people's view of its legitimacy. Once that stigma is strong enough, it can create the political space for governments to pass legislation that reduces the target's power and restricts the harm that it can cause. Tobacco companies, for example, are still allowed to operate and many are profitable. But cigarette advertising, at least in this country, has been banned. Smoking in public places is outlawed, leading to the lowest smoking rates in Australia for decades and also the lowest deaths uh, from lung cancer and similar diseases caused by smoking. That negative image can eventually begin to affect market norms, making investments or raising of debt by the target companies seem riskier, and making it more difficult for those companies to raise funds in the future, even if their current income isn't directly affected by the money that the divestment campaign comes out. So in taking on the fossil fuel polluters today, we remember that we can do all things through him that strengthens us, but that we also gain immense power by working together with our communities here and abroad to enact the change we need to protect each other. It's through that collaboration that the fossil fuel divestment campaign has been able to go from strength to strength. Hundreds of institutions around the world have divested or committed to divest tens of billions of dollars from fossil fuels. Just this week, the biggest ever fossil fuel divestment decision in history was made by Norway's trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund, that's trillion with a T, which announced that it will divest from any company whose coal operations represent over 30% of their business. One of the first campaigns I had up at Greenpeace was our effort, as small as it was, to get the University of Sydney to divest its shares in Whitehaven Coal, which was then building the Malls Creek coal mine in northern New South Wales that I just already mentioned, um, then the biggest under construction in Australia. We mobilised our supporters to call on the university's vice-chancellor to dump Whitehaven and even uh, built a fake coal mine, a fake coal prospecting site on campus to drive home the impact of coal mining on the climate and communities. Our work together with allies at 350.org got the university to go even further than we'd asked and committed to a 20% decarbonisation of their entire portfolio within three years. And it also brought home to me the power of that divestment campaign and of targeting the flow of money to fossil fuel projects at its source. This approach is key to Greenpeace's global campaign to save the Great Barrier Reef from coal that uh, many of you may already have seen. The Great Barrier Reef is the world's largest coral reef ecosystem, extending for 2,300 kilometres along the northeast coast of Australia and visible from space. It's home to a stunning array of marine life, including hundreds of coral varieties and thousands of different fish species. There are currently nine huge coal mines proposed for the Galilee Basin in central Queensland, as well as port expansions in the heart of the Great Barrier Reef coast, which will be needed to export that coal to be burnt overseas. Building the ports uh, that this requires will need uh, millions of tonnes of the reef's World Heritage Area to be dredged up, threatening the habitat of dugongs, turtles and dolphins, as well as the thousands of other species that rely on the reef's habitat. Even worse, if all of these projects go ahead, the carbon emissions from the coal when burnt will be massive. Uh, it's estimated that it will amount to over 700 million tonnes of CO2 per year. If the Galilee Basin was a country, that would make it the seventh largest emitter in the world. The threat that these projects pose to the global climate and to the health of the reef is clear. Increasing levels of CO2 in the atmosphere are absorbed by the oceans, making them more acidic and leading to bleaching and death of the corals which are the backbone of the reef. The broader impact on the world's climate will be similarly devastating. 
It will accelerate climate change, making extreme weather events more likely and threatening global food and water supplies. As the world's top reef and climate scientists have repeatedly said, we can either have coal on the one hand, or we can have a healthy reef and a stable global climate on the other, but we simply cannot have both. We have no alternative but to win this fight and stop the construction of these coal mega mines in Queensland. And getting major international and Australian domestic banks to commit not to fund the Downing Group's Carmichael Mine and Port of Point is a key part of our campaign on the Reef for 2015. Carmichael is the leading project in the Galilee and is the most advanced. If we can stop that project getting the funds it needs to go ahead, then it will be dead in the water, and so will the eight other proposed coal projects that will depend on its infrastructure for their own plans. Already, 11 of the top 20 international banks, including Goldman Sachs, HSBC, and Barclays, have committed to not fund the Port of Point. The main banks Adani have approached so far have also balked at providing financing for the project on environmental and economic grounds. Back home, however, none of the Australian banks have yet ruled out funding Carmichael Lambert Point as their 11 international counterparts have. And this uh, will be our coming uh, campaign focus in the coming months, uh, preventing them from, from funding these projects. As Bill McKibben uh, so memorably said, if it's wrong to wreck the climate, it's also wrong to profit from the wreckage. Almost all Australians have bank accounts, mortgages, or other products with the big four banks, and we think they have a right to demand that their money not be used to destroy what is perhaps Australia's greatest national icon. With the support of people like you, we can make sure that their voices are heard and that these demands are met. Together, we can save the reef, not just for us, but for the generations yet to come. And in doing so, we can help achieve a greater goal. A livable planet whose climate is stable and whose people do not have to live in fear about whether their children will survive the next drought or whether the next catastrophic typhoon will come the following year instead of the following generation. We do so not out of charity, but of solidarity. In the spirit of the words often attributed to Australian Indigenous artists and justice campaigner Lilla Watson, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Thank you so much. Um, tonight we're talking to Marjan Minesma. She's the director of an NGO called Urgenda that brought a case to the Dutch, high, uh, Dutch court and they won. Good afternoon, um, Marjan. Could you please tell us about that case? Good afternoon. Yes, this was a very special case because I think for the first time Agenda as an NGO together with 900 citizens went to the court to ask the court to tell the Dutch government to do much more on climate change and we asked for 25 up to 40% of CO2 reductions in 2020. And the reason we asked this amount was that the Dutch government is since many years partner in the climate change treaty. Actually, we were one of the founders in the early 90s uh, and we have set the minimum level to do for industrialized countries is between 25 and 40 percent in 2020 but our current goal is only 16 percent so we are below the minimum level that we have declared ourselves and I'm personally very worried for the next generation for my children for for actually for ourselves um, and I thought the only way to go was to put all the facts on the table and hope that a judge would recognize that and he did does Holland have large emissions relative to other parts of Europe? 
Yeah, the Netherlands is very small, but we have uh, very much gas in our bot- bottom, and and we are using the gas for heating our houses and so on. So we are a very large emitter. We are actually in the top ten if you would do it per capita, so per person. But we're also in the top twenty-five if you do it in absolute sense. So for a very small country, we are quite bad. Mm-hmm. And if you compare it to Australia, you're not very good either. So we're very much alike. <laughs> we are the winners, I think. We are the worst in the world per capita. Uh, yeah. Yeah, per capita you are in the top t- two I bl- believe after Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and you're also in the top 20 absolute yeah. so you have your coal we have our gas and, and we're quite similar we do 0.5% of the total emissions of the world you do, do 1.5 mm-hmm. um, but that means if you with 195 countries if everybody does his own fair share mm-hmm. then we can still make it and that was what we asked the court and they acknowledged that so the court acknowledged that you should lift your um, ambition really with uh, emissions and so they made a decision how did this affect your government uh, the government is now looking at the court case and should decide before the end of September before they uh, whether they will appeal or not. But this is a kind of court case where you at least should start because if you lose the appeal, you still have to do it in 2020. And if they uh, don't do what's necessary, we can go back to court and ask for fines per day mm-hmm. for every day that they don't make it. And we will get the fines, so that's very nice because then we can do many things uh, <laughs> on climate change. But of course, we hope that they will do what the judge has said and that they will make the 25% at least in 2020 and actually we should do much, much more. But it's new that um, a judge asks for at least 25%, so we say the minimum level you should make and if you don't do it, there is a fine. So you, you cannot, as a government, just think, well, we have another discussion in Parliament and we don't do it yeah. as normal. Yeah. So this is really special because we can now force them to act. I think another thing that's forcing us to think about this now is the Paris conference that everybody is hopeful, not over hopeful, I suppose, but hopeful for that some sort of goals and legislation come through from that. How have other European countries started talking to you about this? Um, is this catching on, your your court case? Yeah, the countries that are also not doing very much, like Belgium, uh, have also an active community and they have started a court case already based on ours. There are, of course, also countries in, in the neighbor, neighborhood from the Netherlands, like uh, Germany and Denmark, England even, that have higher goals. So they are above the 25%. They have 30 up to 40%. So they would not be uh, in, in danger for a court case or something <laughs> because they are already doing at least the minimum. But what you see is that some parliamentarians in the European Union already uh, discussed amongst themselves what does the court case mean and it is a discussion now. Uh, so it also helps to bring the topic to the table and l- apart from the legal topic, you see in the Netherlands now that many journalists are asking all kinds of professors like, what can we do then? Is it possible? 25%? How can we reach it? And there are NGOs now that start to campaign for closing down coal-fired uh, power plants because that might help and there's others campaigning for a price on CO2 and there's others that campaign for energy neutral houses so you see many activities suddenly going on and getting much more attention um, that it might help the government to reach the goal quicker than they think and I think it's posi- very positive that we now finally discuss the solutions and are not uh, discussing anymore whether climate change exists or not. Yeah. Well, look, um, I'm interested to know in what the cultural sort of forces behind this might be in Holland. 
when I've met Dutch people, they take it for granted always that they would be doing some sort of thing with human rights or with environment. Or most Dutch people I know seem to be doing things as a citizen, you know, part of their civic life. But in Australia, it's not so much like that, and we have a media here that seems to be leading us to fear any kind of threat to our standard of living. You know, if we cut out any power stations, we, you know, the electricity price will go through the roof. And, and people have now elected a government, which you've probably heard about, which is taking us backwards. We had good legislation before, but it's taking us backwards. And I think the public mind is absolutely filled with rubbish and very deliberate, perhaps toxic sort of imagery, perhaps led by the fossil fuel companies and their think tanks, because we don't seem to be able to get on top of it here. Would you say the cultural, what's the cultural sort of atmosphere in Holland for this? Is it supportive or like here? Well, I, I think that it's probably the, um, the same, but you don't see many things. Like the reactions on our court case here in Australia were overwhelming. There are all kinds of groups here like Get Up and One Million Women and, and the, the younger people that have a climate coalition. And they received more than a million reactions altogether from all kinds of people that said, are you going to court too? So there are many more people that are worried than you see. But those are the people that are usually not in the media, that are just hard working Australians that see the changes, that see the draws, that see that the coral reef is not doing well because of CO2 making the, the oceans more acidic and so on and so on. So I think there are more worried people than you see. And it's the same in the Netherlands. In the newspapers you see many of the right-wing people, the people that have the big mouths, that uh, thrive on fear and everything the same. Um, and whereas after we won our court case, we got so many reactions of people who phoned up and said we were crying in front of the TV and the people were hugging me that yeah. I didn't know before and yeah. it was really say an, an outcry of hope as well yes. like wow you can do something against yeah. your government and we are not alone mm. so I think that there is a, a big strong group of people that you still that you don't notice yet mm. that is worried and what we should do now is make this group more visible so mm. I've asked also those groups like Get Up and the One Million Women and so on to make much more visible the group of people that really want a uh, future for the children because yeah. that's what it's what's up to it's not about 400 years from now it's this century that we will have major problems if we don't make the change and we should not let it make a, a left and, and, and right wing problem or something the greenies against the business or something it is uh, in the end um, of moving towards a new economy and not moving to the last century and it is about moving to economies that create jobs and clean air and everything so we, sh we should speak up more for ourselves I think mm. that we are not in the corner of the ones that are making it more difficult no we are the ones that making make the change and that create the opportunities and there are many more jobs to be found in, in solar and wind energy than in a coal uh, fired power plant so I think that we should uh, speak up more yep. and show ourselves and choose the right politicians <laughs> <laughs> well I especially liked what the judge said that this was a demand to the Dutch government to protect the citizens and unborn citizens for the future are yet unborn children but that's what you're thinking of isn't it um, no one country can really be responsible for climate change it requires the collaboration of all the countries in the world do you see some sort of movement in that direction 
Yeah, because uh, we won our co- court case because we referred to the climate change treaty that starts with saying we all, all the countries in the world have common but differentiated responsibilities. So the countries like ours, Australia and the Netherlands, that are industrialized should do more than the countries who did not uh, emit so much CO2 yet and who are developing. And if you're a big country, you should do more than if you're a small country mm-hmm. and so on. So this is the basic of the law system surrounding the climate change treaty and therefore the judge said well this is a general basis you have acknowledged that so that means that if I look at your duty of care you should live up to that and you should do your fair share and I think that that's the basis of of this uh, law and of the climate treaty law and that's the same for all democratic states in the world so I don't think that other democratic states can say well this does not apply to us Uh, and therefore I think that a court case in in many uh, countries of the world is possible because the the basic law systems are the same. The civil law basis is that as a a state you should protect your citizens. You cannot simply do an unlawful act. Then you can always go to the judge and the judge can say, government, you're not doing the right thing. Because this is that balance of power that is an essential part of all democratic countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Marjan. We've been talking to Marjan Minesma. Uh, the court case that she was involved in was called the Urgenda case. You can look up just the word Urgenda. Can you tell us the name? What's the behind the name? Yeah, the name was invented by Professor Rotmans, with whom I was leading an institute for tra- transitions at the Erasmus University. It means urgent agenda. Uh, so we started with an agenda for 2050, and we defined all the steps in between. And uh, I think that the agenda is more and more urgent, yeah. and that we need to uh, find ways to speed up uh, together. And therefore, I'm here because I hope that the Australians will also help to move together. If people are interested in finding that on the internet, would they just type in Urgenda and find out like the steps. I think people maybe like would like to copy this, you know, what are the steps in getting a court case up like that? Yeah, we have translated everything that's worthwhile in English for that reason, so you can go to urgenda.nl that's our website, and then you see a little British flag, and you yep. can hit it and then you will see climate case and all the, the relevant documents are translated in English, the verdict, but also the summons, and if you're really, really interested in the legal part go to our uh, first reply to the government, because that's, I think, the best legal uh, piece. It's hundreds of pages but Mm -hmm. it's very worthwhile reading and if you don't know anything about climate change you can read it too and then you then and thereafter you know everything (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much it's moving together to a new economy that gives new jobs that gives new energy that gives much more perspective than going on with the coal coal is dead man walking and you can wait until it really falls over or you can start now with a new economy and create a perspective all over the Netherlands who call us, email us and get congratulated us, but also very emotional calls. We were crying in front of the TV that this was possible. <laughs> I would walk in the bakery shop and he would hug me and say, great! And I, I've been buying his bread for 20 years and he never touched me, so... <laughs> worldwide, 
uh, about this climate case. So you see that it's really resonating. It gives people hope again that we can still do something and that governments cannot go on and on and on, but that, that you can uh, stop them in a way. So I hope that some of these coalitions will work together with the best lawyers in civil law and in uh, environmental climate change law to make a case here and in other countries of the world as well, so that we can well speed up because we need to do much, much more.